0: Welcome to the River Anglican Church, an ancient future church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today, Jonathan continues Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. We're talking about worshiping the crucified Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus. Here's Jonathan. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, just thank you for this morning, and thank you for this time in your word and with your people, and I know that there are, uh, probably all of us need encouragement, we need perseverance. We need to be edified and strengthened in our faith. Um, Lord, we need to be reminded that many oppose the cross of Christ, but also that at times, Lord, we oppose that journey to the cross ourselves. Lord, would you help us with your Holy Spirit this morning? Take these words of mine, take the words of Scripture, Holy Spirit, and help us to see where we like Peter, oppose you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I just wanted to tell you all, because um, many of you have been praying for our family for many years, and that includes our kids, and some of you have taught our kids in Sunday school or youth group. So Michael had a very special evening, and so did we. He got engaged. Let's see, we have a picture up there. No, maybe. Okay, hold on. Alex is Alex is rushing back there. So Michael got engaged To a wonderful young lady, and this is uh, Mitch and and Leah, Robin, myself, and this is Michael and Kenzie Simonis. So yeah, so (laughs) yeah, she loves the Lord. And so again, thank you guys for your prayers. It was a really special evening, Friday evening. We had about 35 people over our house. So it was fun. Um. So we're in our fifth week of a series entitled Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. If you're new here this morning and you wondered, what did we get into? And uh, we're talking about how to move from shallow Christianity into deep transformation. And last week we talked about being before doing, and we looked at the story of Mary and Martha. You might have remembered uh, that we talked about, you know, be still and know that I'm God and so forth. And this week we're looking at the topic of chapter four, which is Follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And you might wonder, what is that? What is the Americanized Jesus? And when we use that term, we're talking about embracing a version of Jesus that our culture has adapted to who we want to be and what we want to do. That we've taken our values and we basically have said, this is our version of Jesus. It's not the biblical Jesus, it's the American Jesus cultural version of Jesus. And the passage we're going to look at is Mark 8, which initially appears as a conflict between Peter and Jesus, but we're going to see it's much more epic than that. It's a conflict between Jesus and his mission to the cross and our demand that God operate in a very different way than we want him to. And we're going to see that uh, behind this uh, relationship between Peter and Jesus is something that you and I deal with every day. And that is that the Lord urges us to go through a narrow gate, but we would oftentimes choose a, a wide and a broad and an easy road. And so we're going to talk about, and, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will bring us to the point of saying, we are committed to that narrow way. We're not going to choose the, the broad, easy way. And so work with me, if you will, through this passage, Mark chapter 8. Uh, It should be in a handout as well as on the slides, and if you have a phone or uh, we encourage people to bring your Bibles, all that's great. And I'm going to look at this passage with you, beginning at verse 31. "He He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after 30, not 30, three days, I guess it was three days, rise again. And he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So, Jesus' mission was to go to the cross because he was to save us, and we needed saving. Peter did not understand the big picture of what Jesus needed to do. Why did Jesus need to do this? And so, when Peter heard of Jesus' future, he reacted strongly against it because not only did he like not like Jesus' plans for Jesus, Peter didn't like Jesus' plans for Peter. And so he took him aside. Hey, Jesus, come on over here. Can you imagine just rebuking Jesus? Yeah, probably we can. He pulled him aside. Come here, I need to talk to you. And after rebuking him, verse 33 says that Jesus retorts to him, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. You have merely human concerns. In other words, what was Peter rebuking him about? Peter had, according to Jesus, human ways of thinking, human concerns about salvation, about what life should look like. How could God save Israel through a dead Messiah? And because Peter did not understand or accept Jesus's ways, he rebuked him. Make a note of that in your mind, because Peter did not understand or accept how Jesus wanted to operate, he rebuked him. Keep that in the back of your mind for yourself and for myself. Well, just for fun, I began to think about what would have Peter's ways look like. I'll take an educated guess. Peter was a pretty type A, like, let's take that hill kind of guy. And so what was his ways well Peter had a strategy his strategy was to get Jesus established as the messianic king that he was intended to be and this involved popularity let's build Jesus's popularity Jesus was on the right track right he did healings and exorcisms in front of crowds. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff we're looking for, Jesus. Remember all those people who were following you and were getting excited about your ministry? And then, oh, remember those entertaining stories, more of those entertaining stories. You talked about the log and the speck, and they were visual and made people laugh and cry. Let's do more of that. And, oh, Less confrontation with the religious. Like, you can tell that's really putting a damper on things. You know, don't confront people. Don't say that stuff like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's not cool. Peter's plan, of course, included alliances with the zealots because you need to appease those zealots. In fact, there was one zealot in his band of 12. And so they were on their way and included alliances, even with the religious who needed to be appeased again and not angered because that could, like, get you killed right? And so eventually there would need to be a military coup because the Sanhedrin had this army and they weren't like very tough, so that wouldn't be difficult to do. That's why you needed the zealots. And oh yeah, let's talk about the leadership team. This is part of Peter's plan. There's a leadership team. Remember they were arguing about who was going to be at Jesus's left and right? And Peter knew I'm one of those three because Peter, James, and John, he always took us aside. We were kind of special. And it's going to be me probably in James because John's like a hippie mystic, and we don't really get him, you know? And so me and James at your right and your left. And by the way, the crowds tried to make Jesus uh, king by force a few times, so things were like working out the way Peter wanted to. And so verse 33 continues, But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Well, this was not what Peter was expecting when he rebuked Jesus. And his plan backfired. He wasn't simply exasperating Jesus. There was something much more intense and serious happening here. Get behind me, Satan. Like he was the enemy of God's people, Israel. Peter was opposing Jesus' movement to the cross, which meant something much more than Peter really understood at the time. And friends, Peter's opposing Jesus' movement to the cross is like our opposing Jesus, taking us to the cross, something that we oftentimes don't really understand the severity of. Well, it's important to note that Satan was already quite involved, if you might remember, in deterring Jesus' mission. And so the the comparison of Peter to Satan was quite fitting. Why? Because it was only years before that Jesus spent a full 40 days being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And there he was tempting Jesus to use his power for the wrong purposes. You know, turn stone into bread, feed yourself, don't fast for God. There he was tempted to use his power to dominate all the kingdoms of the world that Satan would give him. Instead of being dominated, why don't you dominate the kingdoms of the world? He was tempted to perform miracles for himself. Jump off the highest point of the temple and kind of save yourself and wow people once again. But the common thread of all these, don't die for the people. Don't feed the people. Don't care for the people save yourself. The very same thing that the Pharisees said to him. Remember, they said, look, you couldn't even save yourself. And that was the temptation of Satan. And friends, indeed, the values that Satan tempted Jesus with and that Satan tempted Peter with are the same values that he tempts us with in this American version of Jesus. Self-fulfillment and selfish ambition and the lust for popularity and possessions and, and success in our terms of success and power. And get this, this is even more insidious when you mingle selfish ambition with divinity. And so we have a God who no longer looks out for our good. It's a God who is caring most of all for himself. Interestingly enough, my mind was brought back to the garden and that was the first temptation of Satan to Eve was God doesn't really care about you. He's just taking care of himself. And this was also Satan's goal for Peter. The, en- the enmeshing or the intermingling of Peter's Jewish religious- religiousness with this selfish ambition. Setting this compromised pre- precedent for what the disciples were going to be like. He was the chief disciple. And so if Satan could get him to mingle his religiosity with this kind of worldly, you know, version of Jesus. And of course, that's Satan's temptation for us to mesh together our American Christianity, our Americanized version of Jesus and the gospel, to wed that together with our own materialism and with our own selfish will and ambition. And in chapter 4, Schizero asserts this is in large part what American Christendom is becoming. It's becoming this kind of where we shape God according to our values rather than shape our lives according to his values. Well, after this brief conflict with Peter, Jesus gathered the crowd and his disciples and he makes this summary statement. Verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Forever who wants to save their life, he said, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. And so out of Jesus' mouth, we have the application here of the passage. Friends, you and I, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we must go to the cross again and again. And that journey, according to Jesus, says three things. We have to deny ourselves and we have to take up our cross and we have to follow him. Let me talk about those three briefly. Man, the word denial, does that really resonate like with America? I don't think so. Like to say no to something? To say no to something like the commercials say that like we deserve, this is our right, this is something we're obligated to, That's like part of the American way. To say no to things that the world is saying yes to, this means we don't seek like Peter to get our way. We we don't tell God what to do or how to do his job or how to run his world. We give up voluntarily what the world says, this is what you need, this is what you deserve. Like soldiers, we go where God tells us to, we We go and get wounded and we get hurt and we come back and say, thank you, God, for the opportunity to serve. Very different than the world. We forsake comfort and convenience and safety and security and all that because of the privilege of serving Christ and because he did it first. But second, we take up our cross and we walk again, Day by day and week by week and month by month, we walk that long road to Golgotha and these areas of our lives. And that means that we choose forgiveness over bitterness. We choose love over hate. We choose to protect people when we have the opportunity to exploit them or expose them or punish them. And we get a slap on one cheek and according to Jesus, we turn and say, Oh, I have one more left. Go ahead, hit it right here. That's what Jesus says. We go the extra mile for one another. We don't just stop. Remember that story of the, you know, I don't know if you've heard that the Roman soldiers would, were, could require a, a person under their oppression, a Jew or a slave to carry their pack. And he said, go the extra mile, even though you're not required to do that. We do the same for each other. We don't just do the bare minimum. That's what God does. And that's what we do. But third and finally, we follow Jesus. But first, we don't go into the world. You know, there's a, you know uh, the moment I accept Jesus, I'm going into the world. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the moment you accept Jesus, you go to the cross. He says, "Forever, who, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. But again, saving our life is like an American way of thinking that we're going to make our lives better. And God is, God is all about that. And so as Robin said to me weeks ago, we're surprised and we're somewhat offended when something bad happens because that is against what God is supposed to be doing. Because the, the way it's supposed to be is that things are going to be good and they'll be bad and they'll be good again. But maybe not. Maybe not. Is that the gospel, that things will be good again? We can subconsciously use Jesus like Peter did to build the life that we want. And if we have this fundamental attitude, according to Jesus, that's not going to save our life. That's going to lose it. So what is your fundamental attitude and my fundamental attitude? Are we going to save it or are we going to lose it? As I reflected on this this week, I realize this is why I get so angry with God when I want things that don't come to pass or when I don't want things that do come to pass. This is why I get so irritated to God when he doesn't work the way I want him to, which oftentimes kind of weds capitalism more than Christ to my spiritual journey. You know, when it also made me reflect on when I gave my life to Christ. When I gave my life to Christ, which was like 90 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. It was probably not quite that old, but 25 years ago or so. Think about when you gave your life to Christ. What did you vow to God when you gave your life to Christ? Did you say, God, I'll love you when you're good to me? God, when you're good to me, I will love you. Or did you say, I'll love you no matter what? Did you say, I will follow you when you agree with my plans? Of course not. But sometimes our faith begins well and it becomes something different. Sometimes we begin well like Solomon or like Saul and it becomes something different. And we have to think, God, did my faith begin well and begin very precious, but I somehow got compromised along the way. Do I say now, like we do at weddings, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Well, Scazzaro summarizes what it means to live out the crucified life versus the Americanized Jesus. And he says this, we're open to the unfolding of events and circumstances in our life, accepting everything Not attaching to any earthly experience or goal, but trusting God is orchestrating all things for our good, His glory, and the good of the world. Is there anything in your mind as you read that that you think about today that you can really say, God is orchestrating all things for my good? Second, we set goals and directions for our lives and ministries, yet we release attachment to any particular outcome. We engage in active service to Jesus with a passionate yet detached activism, recognizing we cannot manipulate or predict what he wants to do. Third, we are prayerful not to get what we want, but to surrender our will to God's will, recognizing that unhealthy attachments are a a reflection of our core spiritual problem, and that is self will. Boy, that's difficult to say. Or easy to say, difficult to do. Well, the question is that I wondered was would Jesus get this message? That's the story of Peter and Jesus, but as we look at the life of the disciples, would they get this message of Mark 8 about the crucified life versus this version of Jesus that they back then wanted? Yes, they did they would eventually understand there has to be this holy animosity between us and the world. Not that we don't love the good things of the world, but that we don't love the world and its desires and its values and its passions that stand opposed to the gospel. John would say it this way, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Jesus' disciples, James, would say it as he does, oftentimes even more candidly. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. A few more examples. Jesus' later disciple Paul would say a lot about the world and the crucified life. He would say in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern. That word is like the mold or the template of this world, but be transformed according to the renewing of your mind. He'd say in Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make any sense, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And before Jesus would come to his death in that high priestly prayer, Jesus himself would say in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, as I close, let me say that I understand, you know, this resistance to the cross. And I understand, kind of fresh upon thinking through this message, my tendency to stand against Jesus moving me in the direction of the cross. So it's not just the challenge that you struggle against. It's definitely one that I struggle with. I was reflecting on the challenge to not use my ministry um, or the church for personal gain and benefit rather than to die for you and to die with you to the will of God, whatever that be for us. I understand the temptation to work for the building of material wealth and material security versus spiritual wealth. The temptation to... Like the parable of the barns, you know, to build bigger and bigger barns so that there's more security rather than to give and give and outgive, try to outgive God. I understand the temptation to say what's popular, as many of you work in, you know, in secular vocations, and there's a great temptation to say what's popular and to please people rather than at times to say what may not be popular. I understand the resistance to avoid conflict, you know, and look at that as oh, that's the you know, an enemy of the gospel when oftentimes God uses conflict for the gospel. I understand the resistance to avoid suffering and poverty of all types, physical, emotional. Lord, I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't want to be poor at all, you know, but I don't want to be poor in spirit. I understand the tendency to resist, that the commitment to the cross may mean that I'm sick and not healthy, my commitment to the cross, that I'm hurt and not healed, that somehow God could be glorified as much or more through my losses and through my failures than through my gains. I understand that. And finally, I understand, like Peter and like many of you, the temptation to tell Jesus how to run my life and how to run this world and how not to ruin my life. All this says, I understand the challenges to not Americanize Jesus, but to actually follow the biblical Jesus, the crucified Jesus, and to build my life around him rather than to ask him to build his life around me. And so finally, I find it comforting when I look back at Peter's life to see the change in Peter, and you should find comfort in that too that that strong-willed, type-A, let's-take-that-hill Peter, who is oftentimes running double the speed of everyone else in the wrong direction, that he changed. And that not only did he come to understand, but he came to embrace a different mission for Jesus and a different mission for himself. Peter, according to tradition, would be martyred, and he would request to be crucified upside down because he was not willing to be crucified like his Lord. That's the changed Peter. And God gives you and I hope for incredible change, not because of the hero that you have inside of you. You know, I have a cynic. I have a traitor. I have someone who would betray with a kiss. But because there is a hero who loves you and who pursues you and who passionately enjoys you, that's why I have hope for you and for me. And it was in Peter's first letter that he wrote about an inheritance. And the old Peter would have loved the inheritance of a political dynasty and a a financial, you know, piece of the pie as he sat at Jesus' right hand. You know, prince to Jesus at the table. But this new excitement, excitement that Peter talks about in this passage is a reward that no one can ever take away. It's a different kind of inheritance. And that's the kind of person I want to be. And he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ In his great mercy. He's given us a new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. But this inheritance, he says, is kept in heaven for you. May we follow the crucified Jesus. May we look forward to very different rewards than this world offers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you love us and that you are deeply at work in our lives. And thank you that you love us too much to let us put you in this box and to let us make you something one that moves according to our whims and wishes. And thank you that at times you even cause us to suffer. And at times you even allow us to suffer in the body of Christ, that you allow us to experience conflict and pain, because you are committed that we be transformed into your image, because then we will display your image in a dark world. We thank you, Lord, that you are at work, even when it's painful, even when it's deep, even when it's difficult. And that out of this will come people like Peter, who are not looking forward to an earthly inheritance, but are deeply, deeply excited about something much greater. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.